I really was going straight down the rabbit hole of the data, like you were asking me, but I veered off into an off-ramp into the cause and then started looking at different aspects as to what people were dealing with, what they were saying about it, what they were feeling about it, and trying to kind of really look more at the cause and not the data. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Russell Hudson. Russ is a strategist, an economist, and a consultant, and we collaborated when he was working at HP. I've asked Russ to join me today to reflect on a series of provocative articles that he published on LinkedIn, where he reflected deeply on what he calls the great exhaustion. We want to explore these insights with Russ and learn about how these trends that he's observing will continue to influence people's behavior. Russ, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Be very glad to be here and good to see you again through this medium. It's been a long time, so it's good to be reconnected. Let me ask you first, what are you working on right now and what fills you with energy and joy? Well, as you stated in my introduction, I'm not working in corporate anymore, and I'm working really on kind of a portfolio of practices is kind of what I call it. I'm kind of approaching life with several different things that I'm working on and that have ranged everything from a couple of weeks ago, I was with a startup firm up in Silicon Valley, working with them on some strategy type things. Then I spent a weekend with poet David White in Pacific Grove, California, on a weekend retreat, learning more about life and poetry and philosophy and so forth. And I'm also working with a couple of folks in Silicon Valley who are writing a book, and I'm going to be contributing some research to that. And then throughout the thread of all of this stuff, I've just been working on my own practices and my own writing and my own study. So truly embracing and discovering the new Renaissance living through your own experience. Embracing is really kind of my word and embracing a comfortable relationship with uncertainty is really where I'm at coming from a very certain 34 year career in corporate America, large companies, all I ever worked for were large companies. I knew how to navigate. I knew where the mud puddles were. I knew how to operate the budgets, the annual cycles, all of the things that we did. And now I'm really kind of in this liminal space, but it's very exciting to be in this space and being connected and reconnected with folks as well. And part of what you're describing that's being birthed in you and in others in this liminal space is this loss of certainty on the one side, but inside the experience, there is a, a sense of becoming vibrantly alive as you're no longer channeling all your resources to some corporate entity, you are now the theater of expression and opportunity. And it's how you are connecting these dots of impossibility and possibility and how those the poetry of life begins to appear in and through you. 
Yeah, it's really been a connection of many different worlds and many different people and many different perspectives. And it's been really refreshing to talk to people, to be reconnected to people, to be connected with new people, and to really be in an exploration phase. I'm not real sure that if we were having this conversation a year ago or pre-pandemic, that I would have been telling you that I spent three days at retreat with a poet. I just don't think that would have been a part of our conversation, but it is a part of my conversation now, and it's a part of my life now, and what I'm learning and what I'm experiencing and what I'm feeling and what I'm sharing with others. And it's, again, it's been a part of that journey. That's awesome. And part of what provoked my interest was the articles that you published on LinkedIn that we will, in short order, dive into. But still staying with what just you said there, it strikes me that you're experiencing what you're describing in a very personal way. And at the same time, the premise that you're exploring in your articles suggests that really the, in that personal experience, there is something universal, perhaps even archetypal, that you are unfolding in through your own discovery. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but it has really been sort of like Proust Madeleine, right? Remember when he eats the cookie and then he has the remembrances of things past and he writes seven volumes about his past life? It's been similar to that where one thing in me has really kind of opened up many different connections, many different possibilities, many different ways of thinking. And really, I think it's wrong even to say paradigm shifting because it's really more of an expansive kind of world that I've embraced. And not, again, something that I would have predicted or planned, but has really been something that I'm breathing and living and enjoying with others. The level of connectedness that I've had has been extremely high. And in many ways, we are sitting now on the front end where we will end the story as we travel through the key insights of your article. So still staying with what you said there, how does that feel? You already offered some descriptive language there to the experience, but what else would you describe about the feeling and experiential dimension of being in that uncertainty, connecting in your own life, connecting with others? What other language, what other words describe the feeling of that experience? Well, one of the feelings, the thought that I had, it sounds a little bit paradoxical, but it's really been a, I call it the noise in the silence and the silence in the noise. And what I mean by that is that as I have been more contemplative, as I've been more reflective, as I've been immersed into a different world, uh, where it has been a little bit more silent. I don't have constant emails and phone calls and Zoom and everything. And it's been very silent, but I've been able to hear and experience different things, right? So that's kind of the noise in the silence, the good kind of noise. And then I also realized about the silence that the noise created and the life that I came from. I didn't realize how noisy it was until it got quiet. What I mean by that is when I left my corporate world and I stopped getting emails on my phone and I stopped getting messages and I stopped all of that, I just didn't realize the noise I was living in until it got quiet. And on the other hand, as I said, I'm trying to, I'm learning new things by the noise and the things that I'm hearing in the silence. Beautiful. So let us um, dive into the research and the writing and some of the key insights. And the place to begin, perhaps, is to ask you, what is the backstory of this work-life happiness research that you embarked on, and specifically that brought you to reflect on what is now popularized in the idea of the Great Resignation, which you actually renamed and recoined, and we'll get to that in a minute. But give us the backstory of this research where you go and read some obituary and such and make that discovery. 
Well, it first started with me reading about Anthony Clotes at Texas A&M University coined the phrase, the great resignation. And of course, I read that. And as you said, my introduction being partly an economist, I was interested in the data. I was interested in what was happening and is interested in, in the migration of people from their job. And I was beginning to look at that. And I saw a lot of articles, a lot of literature that was being produced about this phenomena that was happening. But I didn't see a lot of of questioning about why it was happening and what was motivating people to do it, right? I think it was kind of lost in the cloud of the pandemic or people thought they were retiring, baby boomers, all that kind of thing. But it really nagged at me that I didn't think any of those landed with me. I thought there was something bigger and different about that. And as I began to talk to other people in the professional development courses I was taking around coaching and just talking to being reconnected to old friends and colleagues, I began to kind of sense a theme around what was happening to people and how people were looking at their work and looking at their jobs and looking at the balance between the two or the imbalance between the two and the real problem that it was creating for many, many people. And not only myself, but for other people as well. And it really just kind of opened up an idea of what did I think was really driving this? And it led me down a path of, again, this work-life identity that people have and how those two can be commingled together and how we observe that and how we live it. And kind of ran across this idea. I think it was David Brooks from the New York Times who writes about resume virtues and eulogy virtues, right? About those things that are accomplishments, those things we've done in life. But then the things that are eulogy virtues are those things that people hold in their affections. And when you think about memorials, the resume part lands kind of cold. It's just facts. But the room really becomes alive when you start talking about what was the affections of this deceased person, right? The trips that they made, the baked goods that they made, the pictures that they painted, the homemade telescope that they made, whatever. So that kind of just started me on this process of exploring what people thought of as their work-life identity, and that led me to the obituary column. Okay, so before we go to the specific insights that you surfaced by reading some of those obituaries, uh, ground us please in the data. We are now, we're having this conversation midway through 2022. Where is the great resignation today? How many people? Is it purely a US phenomenon or or global phenomenon? Just give us uh, some high-level data points. Well, I'll kind of stick to the U.S. because it's a little bit fuzzy when we get into other countries. One of the good things about the tax dollars that you and I and others pay to the government is that they do a lot of research, they do a lot of studies, and they publish a lot of reports. And one of the things that the Bureau of Labor Statistics has always reported, at least for the past 22 years, is what's called quits data. Now, nobody has really paid much attention to it. It's in the back table of a report that comes out every month. It's table four of this big report that comes out, but it tracks the number of people and in industries that people have quit their job. It doesn't mean that they're quitting and they're just staying at home. It just means that they have left that particular employment for whatever reason. And it's been something that's been tracked since December of 2000. So there's over 250 data points so far. But in that period, since December of 2020, when this started, the average number of quits is about 2.7 million per month. And for the last 12 plus months, we've been 
been running at numbers of three and a half, almost four in excess of four. In February, it was 4.35 million. And one of the things that I did was to take that data. And then I just did an old statistical trick and said, well, what's three standard deviations from the mean, right? Because anything that's above that is statistically significant, right? And we've had several months, January of this year and late last year, where the number was above that. So statistically significant numbers. It's not just a data point. It's a trend and it is statistically significant. And if you double click into these industries, it's not just people at fast food restaurants that are quitting. It's professionals. It's people in trades and transportation and logistics. It's really a broad-based kind of process of people quitting for whatever reason. But it is running historically high and it's statistically significant. And the numbers you just ran by us, these are not cumulative numbers. These are monthly data points that track the same trend. It's not every month another two or three million people leaving their job. Am I reading, hearing that correctly? Right. It's a snapshot in time. So the four point three five million that is the latest data for February. So it's a snapshot in in time that Bureau of Labor Statistics has tracked as people have quit. And what do you understand the case to be? So who is doing the work these people used to do before? Has it been automated? Do we have critical infrastructure and capabilities that are crumbling that are not being serviced? What is actually the case? Well, I think it's you're seeing it in a lot of places, particularly in the supply chain, which has, has received a lot of uh, note in the news. But I was at a Rite Aid drugstore earlier today, and that store looks like Sears. It looks like it's going out of business because they're missing so many items that they have not been able to deliver. Uh, the Starbucks that I went to this morning for the fifth day in a row has no sleeves for the cups because they have not come in. So it's showing up uh, in transportation. It's showing up in the number of workers that are in different places. Like, for example, my mother lives in an assisted living facility, so the nursing staff has been extremely shorthanded and turnover. So it's showing up really in all kinds of pockets throughout the organizations. And it's not just age group. It's not just baby boomers quitting. It's not just retail workers quitting. If you look at the data in table four, it's up and down the stack so to speak. And it's really showing up in your Rite Aid, in your Starbucks, in different places where people are not being able to get goods to where they're supposed to be, uh, organizations not staffed where they want to be. And it's really a value chain problem. Causing a degraded quality of service where what we used to expect, we can no longer take for granted. Exactly. That there's not just like when I walked into Rite Aid this morning to buy a six pack of bottled water, there's no water to be had at that particular Rite Aid because they have not received a delivery. So all the shelves were empty for the water. And so, yes, I think we all became very accustomed to, you know, very overstacked, over full shelves, people ready, willing and able to work. And it's really just permeating all kinds of all parts of society, whether you see it or not, it's there. Okay, great. So we will be interested to get your perspective as to whether that's a transitory phase or whether that will find a rebalancing. But let's get back to the article because you then articulate this idea of going deeper from the great resignation to what you describe as the cause, the great exhaustion. And you describe three distinct insights in uh, your articulation that you were able to glean from specific obituary 
that you read. The first insight, but I can, let me just pause there. Is there anything else you'd say about the articulation of this idea of the great exhaustion? And then we'll go into the three insights. I think the only thing I would say is that like many things in life, where I headed with this and where I actually wound up going, we're not the same. It really was an emergent kind of thing. I really was going straight down the rabbit hole of the data, like you were asking me, but I veered off into an off-ramp into the cause and then started looking at different aspects as to what people were dealing with, what they were saying about it, what they were feeling about it, and trying to kind of really look more at the cause and not the data. And the first insight you write, you frame in in the following, you simply say, many workers in the pandemic-induced work life have just had enough. How did you mean that? Well, what I meant by that was, again, in the the anecdotal research I had done in talking with people in the professional development classes I was in, the coaching that I was doing, and just colleagues outside of my peer group, where I actually had some people reaching out to me for therapy, friendship, uh, coaching, I just really began to put this mosaic together that people had just had enough with, as we all got moved to work from home, it shifted more into living at work. And there was no boundary. And it was almost expected that people be on, people take calls at 6 a.m. in the morning or nine o'clock at night. And I think people at first just did it because, well, we're in a crisis, we're in a different place, this is COVID. But as things moved on, I think people just had enough and said, I can't do this anymore. And I know a couple of instances of people that I know that referred to it as I fired my boss kind of thing and that they just couldn't take it anymore. And I think that was kind of the, the harshest reaction, but it was really a reaction, I think, that was really prevalent in how people were feeling about this and about their imbalance in that work-life relationship. And I fired my boss comment. I believe gets to your second insight where you talk about that pivot point. So describe what was that second insight about the pivot. Well, the other end point that I had was, again, like I referred to earlier about what are these things that are important to people? And I think people began to get into a mode of rethinking. I think the pandemic was really the jet fuel for a great rethinking, to use Adam Grant's term. And so as people began to rethink what was important in their lives, was it the job, the salary, where they are in the organization chart, or was it more focused about life? And I know we normally think about this with people that are in a midlife or my age type group. But I think this was up again, up and down the demographics. More people were thinking about this and more and more people were thinking about what is important in their lives. And perhaps that everything that they had worked for, interviewed for, studied for was not as important as they thought. So your second insight there, you describe essentially a choice point, a pivot where people are deciding to off-ramp the, what you call long tenure of drudgery. What's the psychological or realization? or epiphany that underlies that very insight in people making such a choice? Well, I'm not sure if I know exactly what the general purpose is, but I think the more specific purpose is that I think this is a question people have struggled with for some time, but on how much to work, how much to not work, how much to invest in doing something that creates wholeheartedness for themselves. But I think this pandemic really began a rethinking of that and a real focus on what was important. And as people saw family members that were ill, as people were 
are having to work while educating their children at home. It really, I think, again, just kind of gaslit this idea about what was important. And what we thought was important may not really be important to people. And was it worth the opportunity cost, to use an economic term? Was it worth the opportunity cost to invest the time and effort in phone calls and Zoom and emails and all of those kind of things versus those things that they held in their affections, their lives, their purpose, their reason for living. And I think that really was people that I talked to in the research that I did, that was what kind of stood out to me. And the third insight you articulated there brings home this idea of reclaiming your power to choose. Essentially, you're saying people got to a point of, yes, I can initiate a change in my work-life portfolio. And that's kind of partly what you leave with us in the first article. And then you lead in your uh, second article, you tell the story of Elizabeth. So tell us about Elizabeth. And you use, as you convey a story, truly an economist terminology, you describe that she found herself in a what you describe as an unsustainable disequilibrium. That is an economist language describing Elizabeth in this case. So bring her to life and what was the insight about her and what she was doing? Well, Elizabeth was amalgam of all the different people I was talking to and what they were telling me and what they were experiencing. And for example, one woman that I spoke to, we were actually on a Zoom call and she was sitting on the Zoom call and to her left and to her right were her two small children, like eight, nine years old. And they were on their Zoom calls into a class. And she had them within arm's reach on either side of her so that she could monitor them. Plus she was working. And then her husband was in another part of the house working. And it was this crazy balance of managing all of this. And this particular person was an achiever. In fact, everybody that I talked to would be an Enneagram type three, right? Which is an achiever personality, right? People that want to strive. They don't ride up escalators. They run up escalators. They want to do well. They want to have success. They want to strive. And I think these were people that they really got burned out because they were sitting there managing their kids home work. They were trying to do their own Zoom calls. And she was just one example of people that I talked to that just had all of these different traits that I tried to describe in this amalgam of what I called Elizabeth that were just filled with nonstop meetings, nonstop Zoom meetings, nonstop child classroom meetings, and dealing with the great machine bureaucracy that I think we all dealt with in the pandemic, especially those of us that worked in supply chain, that were dealing with crises. All of it just came together in this big gaslit problem and why I created that amalgam just to describe that woman as well as other people that I had talked to to kind of summarize all their feelings and what they were experiencing in the one. What was the 15-minute meeting innovation thing that appeared into the story? And what was Elizabeth Alcatraz's insight? Well, I think it was in a Harvard Business Review article. As you know, during the pandemic and after the great resignation began a topic, a lot of consulting firms and other people came with their prescriptive list on how to fix it. And one of the things was suggested uh, that no one have 30-minute Zoom meetings, only be 15 minutes, which 
sounded like a great thing, right? Uh, let's give people back time. But what happened was that instead of having one 30-minute Zoom meeting or two 30-minute Zoom meetings an hour, they turned into four. And, you know, they became more meetings. And that was something that really permeated with people that the fix was worse than the disease or the cure was worse than the disease. And so the other thing is, is that like biz, the Harvard Business Review said, if you're a manager, you need to check on your people more. So in a Zoom world, you can't walk by, you can only talk to them on Zoom. So that means you had more Zoom meetings just to check in on people. And when you're checking in on people, they can't get their deliverables done. And it just really kind of snowballed into this, what I called death by a thousand Zoom calls. And what is the point you're making about the subtle decline of awareness? And also there, what is the relationship between Elizabeth and your father? Well, my father, I didn't really actually intend to, to write about him, but I did that at the end. But like Elizabeth, my dad was an achiever. My dad was the ultimate achiever. And he was born in 1930, right in the beginnings of the Depression, where people had to work to live. He certainly did. He was born in an agrarian uh, part of the country. And so it was hard work. It was farm work. And he injured himself when he was 19. He actually lost his right hand. But that made him even strive more. And he went on to own several businesses, uh, either own them outright or co-own own them. And then he had his own company that he ran for almost 25 years, the last company that he ran. And he was definitely an achiever, much like Elizabeth. But the thing that my dad didn't realize, which I think Elizabeth did realize, and I certainly realized, was that when he retired in 1988, he had a lot of work in his life, but he didn't have a lot of life in his life. And after he retired, he really had nothing to do. He had no payroll to meet, no staff meeting to run, no deal to close. And he really kind of lost himself. And his reason for living, which was work, was no longer there. And I think that Elizabeth, and I certainly include myself in this amalgam, have realized early on that we don't want to do that. And that there's there's more to life than waiting until you retire and retiring into what? And making not making that mistake. So that's the Alcatraz insight. You've got to escape that lock situation and carve and create for yourself a new future. Exactly. It's not just being paroled from prison. If we think of work as a drudgery in a prison and being paroled from it, but it's what are you going into? And I think that, again, my dad did not do that, but I think people are rethinking that now and also saying that, hey, I don't need to wait until I'm 65 or 70. I need to think about this now because I have a lot of pressure right now. And I certainly did. I certainly have rethought it. And your insight about the subtle decline, it's, it's a bit like, if I understand it correctly, like the frog in the boiling pan, it's that decline and exhaustion can be gradual and subtle. It's not just one big cataclysmic implosion, but that's actually why it can be so insidious, which is why you're encouraging people to be reflective and take the reins of their life in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Right. It's a lot like if we were sitting out on your patio after dinner at dusk, enjoying a glass of wine. And then all of a sudden we realize it's dark, right? But it doesn't become dark in an instant. It gradually becomes dark. But you typically don't realize that it's dark until it becomes dark. It's so subtle. It is like that frog in the water kind of thing. And something kind of jolts you into, well, it's dark. Now we must go back inside the house. And you're exactly right. It's the subtle understanding that the decline or the onslaught happens very 
subtly and it kind of weeps its way through before the damage is done. And recognizing that, understanding that, I think is a great key because as I said, I think decline is inevitable, but misery is not inevitable. And another parallel framing for this very point can be described in technical analysis in the stock market or mass psychology is the point of recognition. We see a gradual erosion and we believe the equity or the market will come back until it reaches a point where we discover that it's dark or that it has entered a bear market. No pun intended about the current trends in the market. But what you are describing, the essence of this is that human perception, human recognition often is a lagging indicator rather than a leading indicator. And you as an economist being converted increasingly into a psychologist of uh, happiness, you're actually calling our attention that we cannot afford to live with a lagging indicator. We need to become for ourselves the leading indicator of our lives, which is where you lead with your third article, because your third article is titled My Journey Through the Great Exhaustion and What's Next, and the which is ultimately the article that got my attention. So you begin this with a scene. You, so please set the scene for us, because you're invoking a particular Seinfeld episode where George plans to break up with his girlfriend. So set the scene for us and, and why did you use it and where you lead with this third article? Well, I was reminded by this old episode of Seinfeld. I had to go back and do a little research on it. It actually aired in 1992. And the script title was called The Pez Dispenser. And the real punchline in the episode is that George Costanza is going to break up with his girlfriend. And he's wanting to do it before she breaks up with him, basically. And so the recurring joke in the punchline is the preemptive breakup. Because he felt that she was going to dump him. But he was going to better her because he was going to dump her first. And he was going to grab the power, so to speak, by doing this. And it kind of reminded me of the situation that we're talking about in my own situation, where I think that is a lot about what the actions that people have taken in this great exhaustion have been, where workers, and again, I'll put myself in this category, have said, look, this is not really about me. I'm going to manage this change. I'm not going to outsource it to you. And so I'm going to preemptively break up with you. And I think that's what people have done where they've not waited to be outsourced. They've not waited to be laid off. They've not waited to be terribly unhappy. They've decided I'm going to manage this change and not let the change manage me. And that's certainly true for myself. And you then develop the article with three learning points. The first of which is that the antidote for your great exhaustion is not rest. So explain that you refer to a particular story from David White. What was the story and what was the insight in the way you have embraced it? So David White, who's an author and poet, but years ago when he was kind of struggling with that, just as what we would call today a side hustle, he was really working in a different job and he was working and he tells a story about working and everything was going so crazy and he was running around and so busy and he walked into a meeting room and he asked if David was there. And he was the only David that worked in that organization. So everybody had a good laugh about that and everything like that. He was so busy that he was looking for himself. But he tells the story that just showed him how exhausted he was mentally and physically. And he actually, after that meeting, he said he went home just because he just was overwhelmed, exhausted 
what am I going to do about this? And that evening, he had a friend that was coming over. This was already pre-planned that they met and read poetry. And so when his friend arrived and he set him down to start the poetry reading, he asked him, he said, talk to me about exhaustion. What is the anecdote for exhaustion? And his friend, who was a Benedictine monk, a theologian, uh, replied that the anecdote for exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. And what he meant by that, and what he meant in David's life about that, was that David was doing all of these things that were not in his affections. He really wanted to be an author. He wanted to be a poet. He wanted to be a writer, but he was just not allowing himself to do that. And he was investing his time in his job. And it was from that time on, David, in the next three months, he left his job and dedicated himself to writing and poetry and so forth, because that's what brought him alive. And he says, that's a really strange thing to go and tell everybody, I'm quitting to be a poet. How do you think that lands on people, right? How does that land on your in-laws, right? I'm leaving my job to be a poet, but that's what he did. And that really stuck with me. And it stuck with me because I heard that from other people, that people really interested in what brings them alive. PowerPoints, meetings, Zoom, all these things were not. And it certainly was not for me. So if the antidote for exhaustion is wholeheartedness, wholeheartedness for you in this liminal zone of exploration that you're in now means what? It means being involved in a portfolio of practices of things where I can learn, where I can teach, where I can write, where I can experience new ideas, where I can contribute. One of the things that last summer that really landed on me when I was still working, we had a new employee in another group that joined the company and someone suggested, hey, to get to know people and get to know things, you should meet people. And here's some people you should set up one-on-ones with. And they suggested me. And I was talking to this young woman. And she asked me, she knew how long I had been at HP. And she said, why have you stayed so long? And she is a person that probably has changed jobs every three to five years. And I've been there for 25. And I just instinctively said, well, I think I've stayed because I thought I was making a difference. But I did not say to her, but what was speaking in my head after that was, and that's the reason it's time to go because you don't feel like you're making a difference. And that to me has become a very important part of life that I want to feel like I'm I'm making a difference in the work that I'm doing, not only for me, but for other people as well. So that's my wholeheartedness. Your second lesson in this article is a powerful quote about purpose. Share the quote and, and what that quote meant for you. Well, the line that I shared was from the great German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, and the purpose of life is to be defeated by greater and greater things. And one of the other things, not in this particular poem, but in another poem that Rilke wrote that's called uh, People at Night, he was wandering the back streets of Paris in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. And as he wandered around at night, he would see all of these people in the different bars. And these are people that were laboring 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day in factories and sweatshops and so forth. And to escape their work life, they were hanging out in these bars. And at that time, and we're talking about the turn of the century, right? The drink of choice was a drink called absinthe, which was a terribly pernicious drink. Edgar Allan Poe and other people found that to their cost, just how pernicious it was. But that's what these people were drinking. And he was observing these people on how they would talk and how they would kind of talk over each other and kind of try to find some spirit in their lives. But it was all very hollow because they really didn't have a purpose. They were just trying to survive. And they were trying to wash away way their work pain through these terrible pernicious drinks of absinthe. And he also, in the closing lines of that particular 
poem says that, and they say I and I, and they could mean anyone, which mm-hmm. basically means that they were in almost a metaphorical suicide in a sense, right? They were just living someone else's life. They had no purpose. And that hopelessness is certainly not the same hopelessness that we're living today because we're not living in the industrial revolution, but boy, it sure feels like it. And I think there's a lesson in that is that, as I said, for me, it's to live your life, not just anyone's. And you are going to be defeated by greater and greater things, especially when you step into the liminal space of uncertainty, because you're just not going to know what's going to happen. It's going to be change. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to manage it. And you just have to build that comfortable relationship with uncertainty. And I partly hear in this message, the invitation that if the purpose of life is to be defeated by greater and greater things, you could also restate it as the purpose of life is to surrender to a greater and greater cause. Whatever that cause may be, something you choose to serve in, in the example you are discovering in a moment through your liminal journey, you are in some way surrendering, I suppose, to the articulation of economic and psychological insights through poetry, which defeats you. And the word defeats here is turns on its head because in a way it leads you to the mastery of conquering oneself. And that leads me to the third insight where you again are inspired by David White. You say a line that really stopped me It is because it is so powerful. And it says, here I stand, I can do no other. Here I stand, I can do no other. What did that mean in the way you internalized it? Well, I internalized it a couple of different ways. Number one, the reason it spoke to me in David's poem, he actually says, this is where I stand, right? That you can look back with firm eyes and say, this is where I stand. But what it reminded me of was this phrase of here I stand, I can do no other, which is attributed to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther has always been my hero in history, not for religious reasons, but just for his intellect and for somebody that took a stand for what he believed in, in When he was brought before the Diet at Worms in 1521 and asked to recount all of the books that he had written and all of the things that he had said, and he had already been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church at this point. So he already had that door closed to him and he was open to death by not recanting. And they had kind of a diet, as they called it, it's more like a trial. And at the end of the day, they said, okay, you can go back and think about this and come back in the morning with your answer. And when he came back that next morning and they asked him, are you going to recant? Are you going to walk away from all of these things that you've written. And his response, at least as legend tells us, is here I stand, I can do no other. He did not recount it because he believed in what he was doing. He believed in his ideas. He believed he was right. He believed that truth was on his side. And I think, as I said, that realizing that the world has changed and Luther's world had certainly changed and the world in Europe in 1521 was changing. But to realize it is one thing, but to act on that change requires courage. And that's one of the things that I admire about Martin Luther is his courage to say, I'm sorry, you don't like it, but I can do no other. I'm right here and I'm going to stand. And whether he actually said those words or that's just attributed through legend or not, I think it's a powerful thing. It's, it's been a very powerful thing to me as I've kind of had my own Martin Luther moment. Yeah, and in some way it resembles the centuries earlier, the, the Socrates trial, where he also was asked to, essentially, will he change his position? But he, in his way, decided to stand for his belief, for his convictions, which is in a way what you summon us into at the conclusion of the third article. And then you title the fourth article, Transitioning from Chasing to Embracing. Explain the message and why you have chosen to title the article in this way. 
Well, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I had read an article in my research uh, written by a associate from Goldman Sachs who was leaving his dream job after being burned out. And in the article, he recants back to when he interviewed as an intern and so forth. And he relays a question that the interviewer asked him, which was, when faced with an escalator, do you climb the stairs or do you ride the escalator? And he answered enthusiastically that he climbed the stairs, right? That's what we want. We want people that chase, basically, right? And that's what we want. And I think that's what most companies want or most managers want, chase. And so that's where I got the idea about chasing and chasing success. And success is a good thing. We all want success. We all want to get paid. We all want to do well. But there's a fine line, I think, between chasing success and embracing something bigger, bigger within ourselves and bigger for society, uh, bigger for our work communities, bigger for our families and embrace something different, which requires that courage of Martin Luther to go and do it because nobody comes to your door and picks you up and say, I'm going to take you to this great place, this great new job, this great new adventure. It's something that you have to embrace yourself. And I certainly had to embrace it. So that's where I kind of got the idea of chasing and embracing. Why do you say that Vince Lombardi was wrong? I said Vince Lombardi was wrong because the quote attributed to him was that winners never quit. And I think we are embodied in that in our literature and in our society that people don't give up and you're a loser if you're quit. Only winners begin to continue to to strive and to work hard. But one of the things I found in my research is people do quit all the time. They just quit the wrong things that are for them. And there's actually some research that I quoted that some psychologists have, have done, Gregory Miller, that there's actually a physiological response to people who continue to pursue goals that they can't achieve. It creates not only stress, but it creates a physical detriment to themselves to continue to pursue something that they cannot achieve. And so it's about quitting and quitting the things that are no longer good for you, that are not in your affections. Like the young man who left Goldman Sachs, he wanted to earn money. He wanted to be rich. He wanted to be an investment banker, but the price was too much and he quit. Or my friend that I referred to earlier, who has written about firing his boss, who literally quit. No two weeks notice, no nothing. I'm done. After 10 years at a well-known financial institution, he quit. And so I think it's not about just quitting. It's about quitting the wrong things for you and pursuing the things that do bring you that affection, that wholeheartedness that we talked about a moment ago. Right. Implicit in this insight is it's not so much quitting one thing as much as it is electing and choosing something else, which is why you're saying that framing offered or missed that point. You then lead in this same article to a sentiment that you capture with the following phrase. You say, the darkness can be your best friend or your greatest thief. How did you mean that? And what's the message in this articulation? Well, again, through the research that I've done in poetry, I've run across several different viewpoints about darkness. David White has a poem about the sweet darkness. Of course, we all know the La Comedia, the, the divine comedy that we all read in high school. The first three lines begin with the protagonist finding himself in a dark forest. And darkness can be scary. As I pointed out, you know, horror movies always happen at night. It never hope happens on a Thursday afternoon in Burbank. It always happens in some scary place at night. And we associate 
associate, I think, cognitively darkness with an afraid and a scared kind of mentality. And that is can be our greatest thief. It can rob us of the potential that's out there because it turns us negative. It turns us to not taking the next step. It turns us into, as Rilke said, huddling around the fire where the magic is in the darkness kind of thing. And so I think the darkness can be your best friend because uncertainty and discomfort is really where we grow as people. Nobody gets better in comfortableness. Like my friend, Dr. Robert Badami says, we as people learn nothing from success. We only learn from failure. And the darkness can be our best friend because if we embrace it and if we can pursue it, then that allows us to rethink, that allows us to experiment, that allows us to connect with others and find these areas of affection and contribution and difference making. So that's what I meant by that. And I think that darkness can invade our work life, as I said, and make it very small, make it very perilous and and closed off. But there is opportunity there if we get ourselves that freedom not to be frightened by it. And you also couple that point with a quote from Carl Jung, and the quote is, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious, which I suppose is the message of learning to embrace the moments of darkness to find inside that uncertain, unknown liminal space, actually a way of rediscovering yourself, refining yourself. Refining yourself, and it also opens you up to new connections. If you're in the dark, and your battery on your flashlight is out, and I come along with a new flashlight with a fresh battery, then we're automatically best friends, right? Because I'm there, I can help you, and we are better together than we are separately. And we can explore, we can find our way out of the cave or whatever the metaphor is, but it gives us that opportunity to make new connections as well and to embrace them as well. And to, again, explore and to learn and not let it be our thief by making us shrink our comfort zone and being unhappy. And that leads you to the fifth article that you title Rethinking Success and Significance, which you have already been alluding to over the last few minutes in several things you have said. What was the discovery that you made about these two animating ideas, the, the rethinking of success and significance? Well, I've heard that phrase for a long time. It's an old phrase, it comes from a 1995 book that was published. And the premise of that original book was that these are two kind of parallel worlds. You can be successful or you can be significant, which means you can make a difference, right? And that particular author in his original book was writing for people that were on the end curve of success. I'll say people that are like in their late 50s or 60s, and you've had all the success. Now you can transition to being significant. You can give back. You can make a life of meaning for yourself and for others. And the point that I had, which was kind of arguing with his premise a little bit is, I don't think you have to wait until a particular age. You don't have to wait until retirement. You don't have to wait that these are uh, choices that you can make. You can be successful and you can be significant or have meaning in your life. They're not two different things. They probably don't naturally go together, just like oil and water don't naturally go together. But as I pointed out, oil and water will go together 
with an emulsifier, right? And that's what I think we need to look for are those things that bring success and significance together, how we can use success to create significance and how we can be significant and be successful as well. So you're really inviting us there to transcend the view of these two ideas as a polarity. And you are suggesting that there is a way to embrace an ambidextrous mindset, an ambidextrous way of being where you can lean into both. The, the interesting challenge is that in Western cultures, often indeed, as you say, success is measured externally, comparatively. It's not even how much money you have in the bank. Often it is how much money you have in the bank in comparison to somebody else. So did you win the gold, the silver or the bronze? There is an element of transactional value set within which success is measured. And as you said, significance is to do with meaning and is to do with authentic set of values that perhaps are represent something that's indelible, that will not be shifting for you through the ups and downs of public opinion. So what that really, to me, what I read in that, in your invitation, that we can actually develop a way, a map of meaning where we can lean concurrently into success and significance is an invitation for a more sophisticated internal operating system, one where we develop ourselves as more than a one-dimensional life. That's how I internalized your invitation there. No, it's a great way to think about it. And that is the invitation. And as I pointed out, I quoted my, he's passed away now, but a good friend of mine, Dr. Bruce Larson, he said, the emotionally healthy person lives in the now, right? So we don't have to wait until some other time. We don't have to wait until we retire. We don't have to wait until something else happens. We don't have to live a life of contingency. We don't have to wait until the car payment's done and this is done and the kids are through a school or I get this promotion or I pay this off or whatever. You can do it now and you can create significance now and embrace that now. And I think that is the invitation for us not to just outsource it to some future period, but to do it now and to live those questions that you might have, those contributions that you can make right now. Don't wait. How did you mean this word you're using there, which is satisfying and embracing satisfying? What is the meaning of this word? actually comes from Herb Simon, who won a Nobel Prize in economics. And part of the reason he won the Nobel Prize is that he defeated one of the basic assumptions about economics, which was that we all are rational people that make rational decisions. And he turned that on his head and said, no, we as people don't always make rational decisions. We make decisions that are a combination of satisfaction and sacrifice. So in other words, we kind of find a workable, feasible solution, but it might not be the best solution. It might not be the most rational solution. It might not be the most return you can get on an asset. It might not be the job that pays you the most money. That you look at a, a list of variables and you make a choice. And he coined the word satisficing, which is again, uh, kind of this hybrid of sacrifice and satisfaction. And so what I was proposing was unlike the 1995 version of success and significance, which said these kind of live in two different worlds, that I could steal a little bit from her Simon, and we could combine the two. And you can live on a frontier today where you have success and significance, what I call that satisficing frontier, where you can find ways to combine these together. And if you are able to do that, that is an anecdote for the great exhaustion, because you are living for others, you're living in a greater purpose, you're living your purpose, whatever that happens to be, and not just living one purpose, which is my bonus, my paycheck, my 401k, my three cars, my timeshare in Hawaii, all that kind of thing. So that's really where I got it from and created that concept of trying to meld this economic idea with this context of how to live. Is there 
in this also that the satisfying side is satisfying in the near term and the sacrifice is a bit of their long-term regret inquiry looking backward from the end of your life type of calculus. Is that the way you mean the embrace of sacrifice and satisfaction? Exactly. That you don't have to wait until some future period. And if you overinvest in work and not enough in life, then to go backward a little bit, you wind up a little bit like my father did. Yes. Right. Because the work is going to end. No matter how successful you are in your work, no matter what your job title is, no matter what your bonus is, no matter what your stock options are, all of that is going to come to an end at some point. What are you going to do then? And that was kind of my lesson in sharing about my father. Very successful man. Knew more about business than I will ever know, even though I have three degrees in business. An entrepreneur, a smart person, a sharp person, but he was very good at work, but not very good at life. And I think that's the invitation for us is to create space for life and not just wait and outsource it to some time when you're 65 or 70 or something now. You can do it today. You can embrace it today. And the other important implicit message in what you are inviting us into, Russ, is that in both cases, success and significance, these two pursuits that you're proposing can be concurrently approached. They both can be hindered by lack of self-worth, lack of self-esteem. If we don't have a healthy, mature self-value and dare I say self-care, self-compassion, self-love, we're not very likely to be a stable vessel for significance. So for me, the message, your message there, it opens the way to an inquiry into what is the way to think and determine in terms of how you will build that sense of the right kind, the mature kind of self-worth. And it's an invitation for an introspection and for the path of psychological and developmental and perhaps philosophical and spiritual growth, whatever those words may mean for you, where indeed there is a property that you may be able to foster in who you are as a human being walking the face of this earth at this time, regardless to what was it that you were able to create as value for shareholders of this company or another, because in your life, guess what? The two are integrated. You are the company and the shareholders, and also the shareholders are all the other people in your life that look up to you. Right. And it's about making that space for that to grow and to allow for that sunlight to come in and for that learning to happen. And I think that's what I was talking about in The Great Exhaustion. So people have been rethinking that and taking stock of that. But in my own personal journey, I have taken time to stop and I've taken time to invite this stillness and to not just be driven by running up the escalator like the Goldman Sachs guy. Again, I'm a type three in the Enneagram. I'm an achiever, but there's something about taking the pause and inviting in different perspective, inviting in the silence. And it's okay not to be in that strategic mindset 24-7. So read to us, please, the last paragraph that closes this article where I saw this to essentially mean your brief out of the great exhaustion. That's the paragraph that begins with embrace the rebalance of your individual work-life portfolio. Invest uh, your most precious asset into your passions, your family, the great unknown. How do you complete this paragraph, please? 
Well, one of the things that I go into this is I referred to a story that Arthur Brooks told a man he met on a plane. And I won't repeat that story here, but that man on the plane was a very successful person, but he was miserable. And so my point was, don't become like the man on the plane. Live out what my friend, Dr. Bruce Larson had said, that we have an opportunity to face life in a whole new way. Start by living life to the hilt, have no unfinished business in your life. If there's some adventure that you want to begin, start today. And it just reminded me of that old Chinese proverb of when's the best time to plant a tree in the 20 years ago? Well, when's the second best time today? And I think that's really what the key is that we don't outsource this to some other time that as Bruce said, we start today. That is the path I believe out of the great exhaustion. Thank you, Russ. In closing, let me ask you, what do you hope to be writing about in the next few years? Well, I'm continuing to be, for the economist, strategist, consultant that I am, I continue to be very interested in the softer sciences of psychology and poetry and so forth. But the next thing that I'm noodling around with, which is kind of an extension of this, but I've done some research and reading some articles about what's called the fresh start effect. And that is about people that do start over. And what is the effect of that? And how do they deal with that? And how do they perform? with that. And there's actually some psychological research around that. So I'm very interested in not just part that we've been talking about here today, but what happens in the next step and this so-called fresh start effect and how that plays out in the lives of people and how that works. I'm also just very interested in how people and organizations are interacting and what the new work paradigm is going to be and how we rethink that. I'm very much into this whole idea about rethinking and unlearning. And I think it's, those are both things that we need to adopt more and that I need to adopt more. And that's the journey that I'm on. That's awesome. So we can stay tuned and look forward to your next writings about rethinking and about restarting and starting afresh. That's what I hope to do. And I hope to come back and talk to you more about those things as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.